Well, find Ephesians 6. You know, I know that, uh, <clears throat> I know a number of years ago, is this a little loud? Yes. It is? Okay, I'm, I'm thinking it's a little loud too. Okay, let me pull that slide down some. You know, I know that a number of years back, we went through the book of Ephesians. Is that better? Y'all tell me, is it still too loud? Still too loud? Go down a little bit more. Okay. Is that better? Okay. Uh, we went through the book of Ephesians a number of years ago, so I know we covered chapter 6 when we were in that book study. Uh, but I have just felt led recently that I wanted to look at the topic of spiritual warfare from Ephesians chapter 6 and to cover this passage bit by bit. We'll probably be in it six or seven weeks uh, looking at this. And, you know, I was thinking all that's going on in society today, uh, everything that believers are up against and decisions being made and so forth, uh, I mean, we are indeed engaged in spiritual warfare. The church is engaged in spiritual warfare. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So find chapter 6, and we're going to talk tonight on the subject matter, the Christian at war. The Christian at war. And tonight we'll just deal with uh, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. You know, somebody's taken the time to review the history of war and they looked specifically at the last 4,000 years of civilization and they came up with a number that in that 4,000 years there's only been 250 years without war. Now, you know, I'm kind of surprised in the way they even came up with that many years because when you think of all the nations of the world and uh, in some countries, tribes and families at war with one another, uh, I'm not even sure it would be 250 years of the absence of war. But anyway, that's what they reported. Uh, we know that war is such a common part of our experience here on the face of the earth. Uh, many of us have relatives that have served in a war. Some of you in here been in the military. Is any, anybody in here actually served in a war, in a, in a conflict? Okay. Korea. In Korea? Okay, probably Desert Storm. Afghanistan. Okay, okay. And we probably all know uh, a veteran who has served in a war. Of course, we know the World War II veterans are passing away at, what, about 600 per day of World War II veterans are dying. Um, but again, if we don't have a relative, we probably know somebody. War is all too common. Uh, we live in times when war is very common in the world. But it's also common for the Christian as well. You see, the Bible tells us that we face three enemies. John talks about these, doesn't he? What are those three enemies? World, flesh, and the devil. 
the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world refers not to the people of the world, but to the current world system that is opposed to God. The world system that caters to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The flesh is that old nature that we inherited from Adam, a nature that is opposed to God and can do nothing in our lost state to be able to please God or make ourselves right with Him. And today, of course, we're going to talk about the devil. And we know that by his death and resurrection, Christ has ultimately overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. But yet, this spiritual warfare still wages on and will always be involved in spiritual warfare, this side of heaven. You see, we have a very clear enemy who keeps the battle stirred up, and that enemy is Satan. Now, before we look at his activity, his identity and activity tonight, let's think a little bit about what Paul's been doing in the book of Ephesians. Paul's been speaking about God's plan in Christ. How through Christ, uh, God is inviting, God is saving both Jew and Gentile, and tearing down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and making both a part of his family, his church. And then Paul talks about God's plan with the church. Uh, and he talks about the high calling that we have as individual believers. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 1, look at what Paul says there, that we are to do what? We are to be imitators of God. And then he goes on in chapter 5 to, to paint a beautiful picture of members of the church ministering to one another, praying for one another, submitting to one another. Then he gives a beautiful picture of the husband-wife relationship and then of the parent-child relationship. And he goes on and on and on talking about the various relationships that we face in the world and how Christ ought to make a difference in all of those. Because he transforms us. But Paul closes his book by reminding us of how tough the Christian life is going to be. It's going to be lived out in a world that's not at peace with God. That's where our Christian lives are lived out. God doesn't put us in a protected bubble. We live in the world. We're not to be of the world, but we live in the world. As somebody as well said, we don't go out of the tranquility of our homes to a bake sale or a bazaar, but to a battlefield. And so God doesn't want us thinking it's always going to be easy. It's going to be a constant battle. Dr. Harry Reeder, who used to be at Christ's Covenant down in Matthews, I like what he said about this. He talks about the main problem in the West with a soft Christianity is that we have the mentality in the church that we are aboard a cruise ship when we ought to be understanding that we are to be aboard a battleship. <clears throat> well, God wants us to be forewarned of our battle and he wants us to be equipped. And that's what he's telling us in this passage. We need to understand our enemy and our equipment and our energy. And today we'll just look at the first, our enemy. 
Look again at verse 10 and following. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let me go ahead and change that. Change the slide. We need to understand our enemy. We need to be clear who our real enemy is. We need to understand him and his ways. Look at what he says there in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have an enemy, Satan. Some Christians think they can outgrow encounters with the devil or they can outgrow him. But we need to be reminded what happened with Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism. The Spirit of God drove him out into the wilderness and who did he meet out there? He met the enemy. He met Satan and obviously overcame the, the temptations. You and I will never outgrow encounters with the evil one. <clears throat> Satan also has a well-trained and wicked fighting force. They're called here what? Principalities and powers. And so again, we need to understand our enemy. In World War II, a man by the name of Rommel was one of Adolf Hitler's generals. And Rommel was considered one of the greatest generals of all times. Does anybody know what his nickname was? The Desert Fox. The Desert Fox, exactly. Well, in 1942, when Field Marshal Montgomery of the British forces was getting ready to engage Rommel in battle in Egypt, he studied everything about Rommel that he could find. He wanted to know what Rommel's every move typically was on battlefield. And he immersed himself in that so he would understand his enemy. Well, we know what happened because it's enshrined in history. He did, in fact, defeat Rommel in Egypt. But again, he understood his enemy. And so to some degree, we need to have that same attitude about Satan. We don't need to study about him out of a mere curiosity or fascination. Now, we also need to be careful. I remember years ago when, when it seemed like everybody was writing books and talking about spiritual warfare. We don't want to be so fascinated with the devil. I mean, we want to be fascinated with Jesus. Uh, we just don't want to be fascinated with every aspect of the, of the enemy. That's not what I'm suggesting tonight. I'm just simply suggesting that we need to understand it. And so that's what Paul does. He writes here to warn and equip the church. Now the first thing I want you to notice that he talks about here is who he is. Paul doesn't give his readers a history of the devil. He assumes they know about him from other places in the scripture. And where's the first place we learn about him? Genesis 3 in the garden with Adam and Eve. Well, at Ephesus, they were also very acquainted with his ways. Remember all the occult activity at Ephesus? Uh, listen to Acts 19 for a minute, beginning in verse 11. 
Luke tells us, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on him, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And so as Paul writes about the activity of the enemy, they had seen that firsthand there at Ephesus. You know, I realize in the world today some people doubt Satan's existence. Or when they, when they picture Satan, what's the typical image? <laughs> Little red, I guess, flannel pajamas, right? <laughs> With a forked tail and a pitchfork, right? But I want you to know that's not certainly not how the Bible portrays him at all. He's mentioned in seven Old Testament books. He's found in 19 New Testament books. And every single New Testament writer makes mention of him. And the Lord Jesus speaks of the evil one at least 15 times. And so to deny the presence and the reality of Satan would be to deny the word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Now, when we think of origins uh, of Satan that we see in the scripture, I know there are two Old Testament, other than Genesis 3, there, there's a couple of Old Testament passages that are commonly pointed to. Uh, one is Ezekiel 28. Now, let me be honest with Ezekiel 28. Some make the case that Adam is being described here. One of the top New Testament scholars in the world, Dr. Greg Beal, out of Westminster Seminary, would take that position that this is a passage referring to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, some would say, no, it just is limited to the king of Tyre that it's addressing. But there are others that think it's referring to more than just a mere man. He says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, 
You became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. And then in Isaiah 14 is another passage people will point to. Isaiah 14, 12 and 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So what Satan say? I'll ascend into heaven. I'll take God's place. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I'll be like the most high. And then one more passage in Revelation 12, 7 to 9. We're told war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So that's some passages in the Old, old and New Testament, obviously. Not an exhaustive list, but some that refer to him. Now, there's some names of Satan that we see in the scripture. There's the name Satan. What's that name refer to? Accuser. The adversary. He's our adversary. And, of course, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 that he's roaming to and fro in the earth seeking someone to devour. He's our adversary. What did Jesus tell Simon Peter? Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission, and in the Greek it's and been granted that, that permission to sift you like wheat. But when you overcome, strengthen the brethren. He's our adversary. Another name is simply devil. Refers to him being a slanderer. And then the word serpent, what's that imply? He's cunning. He's sneaky. He's also described as a liar. Jesus said when he tells a lie, he's only speaking out of his nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. He's also called the deceiver. Again, he's crafty. He doesn't say, good morning, I'm the devil, and I'm here to destroy your life and your family today. He's crafty. He's subtle. Paul says that he even disguises himself how? An angel of light. An angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11, 14. H.A. Ironside once, in his exposition of, of Ephesians, he made, a, he made a very interesting analogy about Satan's deception and craftiness. He uses an illustration from the book of Joshua in Joshua 9. You remember they're, they're going in and they're to drive out the Canaanites and, and they're not to make a covenant with them. They're to drive them out and they're to take the land. And so that's what they're doing. And God's granting them success. 
for the most part, they're enjoying that success. Where they're obedient to God, they're seeing the success. And so what do the men of Gibeon do? Remember, the men of Gibeon are a tribe. They're a people, not Israelite, but they're, they're a people in the land that was supposed to be driven out. What do the Gibeonite men do? Do you remember that story? What'd they do? <clears throat> Put on old clothes, worn out sandals, stale bread. Exactly. Yeah, and said all of us, all of our clothes were new when we left. You know, this bread was just out of the oven. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been marching a long time to get here. We've been, we're from far away. We know you're not supposed to make a covenant with people in the land. We're from far away. We want to be on your side. We want to join you. Will you make a covenant with us? Well, the Bible says they didn't inquire of the Lord, Joshua and people. And they did make a covenant with them. And then they found out they'd been deceived. And so they were like, let's kill them. Let's get rid of them. And Joshua had to say, no, remember, we took a vow in the presence of God. You know, we've done wrong. We, we accepted their story, their lies, their deception. But nonetheless, we've made a covenant with them. So we're going to have to make some other solutions here. To, you know, they're going to be servants or whatever, but we can't destroy them. And Ironside said, when you look at that deception, that trickery, that's really sort of an analogy of how oftentimes Satan works. He's also described in Scripture as a schemer. He has wiles. He has strategies. He has methods. And Paul talks about all of those words right here in this passage. He's methodical. He knows your weaknesses and my weaknesses. He seeks to gain a foothold into your life and my life. And what he attacks you with may be a little bit different, a different nuance to it than what he might attack me with. He's methodical. Again, he's a schemer. And in his schemes, what's Paul say here? Some days are tougher than others. He says, you know, you need to put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand in the evil day. The implication is some days you may feel that attack more than others. Now, let's think about activity that he's engaged in. I want to list out here probably eight or ten things for you. Some activity that we see of Satan in the Scripture. First of all, in Genesis chapter 3, we see him accusing God before man. You know, he paints God out to be stingy. And God had been a generous God. You, can, you eat up all the trees of the garden. There's just this one you can't eat up. And Satan comes along and says, you know what? God knows that in the day you eat of that, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God's keeping you, he's keeping something from you that you need. He's a stingy God. Look at how good this is that he's keeping from you. So he was essentially accusing God before man. 
God's withholding something from you that, that you ought to have. In, in Job, what do we see? We see him accusing man before God. In the day that the sons of God came before God, Satan also came there. And God said to Satan, what? Have you considered my servant Job a righteous man? What Satan say? Well, of course he's righteous, God. You put a hedge about him. You've been so good to him. But you tear down that hedge. You quit protecting him and doing good for him like you are. And Job will just be like any other man. He'll curse you to your face and turn away from you. So he's accusing man before God. A third way that we see his activity, influencing Cain to take the life of his brother Abel. He's a murderer. And he's leading Cain to take the life of his brother. Folks, today, think of all the tremendous disrespect for life. Who do you think is behind that? You know, from, from the very beginning of the Bible, from those opening chapters of Genesis, what do we see? The sanctity of life. That we're created in the image of God, male and female. We're created in the image of God. Life, life is sacred because of that. Every person you meet, even those you don't, uh, you don't agree with, there's a sense in which everybody, because they're made in the image of God, has dignity and value and worth. Everybody's not saved, but everybody has dignity and value and worth because we've been made in the image of God. But we see all this downgrading today of life. All this violence and killing and all that we see in the world today. Uh, heinous crimes. Who's behind all that? The evil one. And Jesus said another activity, fourth activity in John 10, 10, he's come to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. He tries to steal glory from God. He wants to steal your heart. He wants you dead to the things of God. He wants to kill you. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to destroy your life, your marriage, your future, your parenting, whatever it is, he wants to destroy A fifth way we see him working in Scripture, he steals the seed of the gospel. Remember that parable Jesus told about the soils. That fir the first, the seed initially fell on that first soil. What was that? Okay. We don't have to worry about that wonder about the parable because Jesus went on himself to give the interpretation of that parable. And that hard soil or the pathway where the seed could not even penetrate, what Jesus say happens? Birds come along, steal the seed away before it's able to penetrate the earth and take root and produce a crop. What what Jesus say those birds and what's going on there? You remember? The evil one. The evil one that steals away that seed. Still another activity. He sows tares among wheat. Matthew 13. Wheat. Tares. Wheat symbolizing genuine believers. The redeemed. And Jesus talked about tares growing up among the wheat. 
that the evil one has sown those tears. And what did the disciples say? You've got to separate them. Yeah. Because in the world, among believers, you go out in the world, and what is there in the world? Not only the wheat, there's tears, the unbelievers. Do we try to make the separation? No, Jesus said, you've got to be careful about that because you'll mess up. You might uproot some of the wheat. He said, don't worry about it. At the end of the age, the angels will separate at the judgment. But we look around us in the world today. Tears among the wheat. Saved and lost. Together. Coexisting. Um, still another work of the evil one. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that he attempts to block the missionary efforts of the church. Paul says there in verse 18, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. And then still another activity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, that he blinds the mind of the unbeliever. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Then in Ephesians 6, Paul says he combats or he fights believers. We strive against him. And it was a word that implied hand-to-hand -hand combat in close quarters. It was used of Romans uh, in, in their battles, hands on throat, gouging out eyes, whatever, close hand-to-hand -hand combat. Still yet another activity you see of Satan. You look at the churches of the book of Revelation and you can see how Satan attacked each one of those churches. Five out of the seven in some way or another had ventured away from the Lord and the Lord was calling them back. Each church was facing something different. Ephesus, of course, had fallen out of love with the Lord. Pergamon, Satan had got among them to where they adopted the ways of the world and compromised with the world. Thyatira, they had begun to tolerate sin in their midst and not deal with sin. So ways that Satan had come against those churches. What I'm trying to say is he has all kinds of ways to dilute not only the effectiveness of of an individual Christian, but also to come against the ministry of a body of believers. He does both. He doesn't want us being light in the world. We're to be salt and light. Then what Paul does here, he goes on to talk about the help that he has. Verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Look at the way his workers are described. Principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual host of wickedness. Who's he speaking of there? 
demonic powers, demonic beings. Read the Gospels, you see Jesus encountering demonic beings on a number of occasions. Uh, they're powerful, they're wicked, they're cunning. But we need to realize something about Satan. He's not all powerful like God. Folks, we, sometimes you hear people talk and they, they're almost venturing in to the Greek philosophy of dualism that there's two competing omnipotent beings in the universe and they're fighting it out and we're standing back wondering how it's all going to turn out. There's not two equal omnipotent beings. Satan was created. He's a created being. He's not omnipotent or omnipresent like God. I'll, I'll never forget one time, years and years ago, hearing Dr. Charles Page in a sermon. He used to be a First Baptist of Charlotte. And he said on one occasion, when somebody feels like they've had an encounter, they've been attacked by Satan, it may be that they've been attacked by one of his demons. Because again, the point he was making, Satan can't be everywhere. But he has a host of demons. And so what Paul is saying here is we have a wicked foe. We have a wicked foe. And we need to understand something about him and how he works and recognize how he works. Well, what's our response to be? Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look down at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So what's the first thing we're to do? We're to be strong in the Lord. We're to be made strong in the Lord. And it's continuous. We don't defeat the evil one in human wisdom or strength. We are to be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his mind. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll pray to the Father. He'll send another like me. The Holy Spirit's our constant companion. Comes alongside of us. And Jesus reminded us, reminded his disciples in John 15, that we are to abide in the Lord. We're to abide in him and he in us. What I'm saying is we're to be strong in the Lord. We're to be growing. The Christian life is not to be stagnant. It's a, it's a daily relationship, a daily walk. We're resting in the Lord. We're depending on Him. We're growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And through that love relationship with Him, through that growing relationship, God is strengthening us. God is helping us. And He gives us His power to withstand what we face. And then what we're going to begin looking at beginning next week, is where Paul goes on to say, put on the whole armor of God. Put it all on. 
You know, a soldier at the time, they, they would put on every piece of equipment when they were going into warfare. If they left off a piece of equipment, they were vulnerable in that area. And Paul is saying, God has equipped us to be able to stand firm against our enemy. God has provided what we need. He's a good commander-in-chief. He's sovereign God. He's given us what we need. This idea of Christians just being helpless, that's not the biblical image. Again, we grow in the Lord, we lean on Him, we depend on Him, we abide in Him, He lives His life in and through us, and we make use of the armor that He gives us to stand against the evil one. And we're going to talk about those things. But tonight I just simply want you to realize that you are involved in spiritual battle. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to go out and see a devil behind every bush and just be fascinated or so curious about the work of Satan and his demons. Again, that's Paul's not saying all this to be a just a fascination or a curiosity to us. But we do need to understand we have an enemy and we need to recognize who he is and how he works. You might be fighting the devil in your life in, in some particular way right now. Some particular way. Perhaps you've given him a foothold. And you need to recognize that. And you need to deal with that. You also need to know that you're not alone. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Go to the Lord in prayer. Go to other believers. Get them praying with you. And folks, let's remember that through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what has He done? What's Christ done? The victory is won. The skirmishes go on. But Satan knows his time is short. As Paul says in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You know, sometimes in those Roman defeats, they would march back through town with the ruler that they had just defeated, the troops. And they would have them in a parade to shame them and maybe march them through and, and let everybody see how Rome had triumphed over them. Well, Jesus has triumphed over principalities and powers in high places. He's triumphed over the evil one. The death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The battle's won. But again, skirmishes continue. And so we need to be prepared. 
to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His mind. Amen? Questions, comments? Matt, I'm not pointing this. The, my computer's writing behind me. You've probably been wondering why I'm pointing this and you like zap, zap, zap. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say, Satan does not do skirmishes. He does all-out sure. war. Sure. You know, it is, he, goes, he knows his time is limited. He knows he's defeated. But, so he wants to do all the sure. damage he can. Yeah. And he'll, he'll pull all the stops out to ruin a Christian's testimony, to ruin the effectiveness of a church through compromise, sin, worldliness, etc., etc., etc. That's right. He knows exactly where your point is. Sure. And he just keeps hitting that one point over and over and over. Something that uh, Pastor Stephen says is uh, that the devil knows our potential through Christ also. And he knows that if we are with Christ, that we, you know, can spread the world or spread the word and the light and, you know, bring more people to Christ. And that's not what he wants. So he does everything he can to keep us from doing what we're supposed to be doing. Oh, yeah. Because one, one of the pieces of armor we're going to look at is, is the shoes. Preparation of the gospel of peace and how proclamation of the gospel is, is one of the ways we overcome the evil one. Yeah. Can the lost person be demon possessed? Oh, certainly. And I know a Christian can't. Right. We, we can certainly be oppressed. Yes, but not. And we're opposed to that by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, at the moment of our redemption, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But lost people certainly can be possessed. I mean, we see that constantly in the Gospels. I think of the garrison demoniac. Uh, demon possessed by a legion of demons. I think often we as Christians are... Maybe some that are, let's say, religious, do not want to accept how powerful Satan is. Right. Again, we don't assign to him power anything like the Lord, but he's a wicked foe. Yeah, it says the prince and power of the air. Sure. One of the things about Satan, he's an accuser of the brethren. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit's not an accuser. He's a convictor. Amen. Amen. And when the Spirit of God points the finger of 
conviction in me. It's always specific. It's not some broad generality like <clears throat> the accuser of the brethren. You know, it's like trying to trying to figure out what do you accuse me of? Oh, you're it's like trying to nail jello to the wall. <laughs> Boy, when the Spirit of God convicts a believer, you know it's him convicting you and shows you what to do about it. Sure. All Satan wants to do is just accuse you and let you wallow in it. Darren, back to your question, I think anytime we transgress against God's sin, we we give the devil an opportunity. We open avenues for him to work even more in that area. Um, I think it's in Ephesians 4, isn't it? Paul says, don't even give the devil an opportunity. Yeah. You know? So I think anytime we, we sin, we certainly are opening the door to more of his activity. In, um, in more in relation to her question, you know, also, I guess my question would be, even sometimes when we feel like we're not sinning, we could be opening the door mm. for him, you know. Um, I guess, you know, if, you know, some, some of the things like what we question about ourselves uh, gives him that opportunity to... Sure. Dig on us, you know? Sure. By denying who we are in Christ and what, who, who we are. And by what she's saying, too, sometimes trials come into our life that could be from Satan, and sometimes they're not from Satan, but they're there's God. something wrong in our God's life. God's testing us to build that character. God's testing us. Sure. And so maybe that's kind of where... Is this from God? And do I need to examine? Is God trying to get me back on the right track? Or am I okay? And Satan's trying to get me off my track. It's difficult. Isn't it like a fallacy to assume that Satan's tempting you? Because he's not omnipresent like God is. So like why would he, you know, I assume he's one place one time. Mm Mm-hmm. So whoever well, he's may be using his... demonic powers to tempt you. Uh, we know, of course, according to James 1, that God doesn't tempt us to sin because God is not tempted by evil. He's, he's all-sufficient. There is no lack in God. Um, there is no shortcoming in Him to be tempted. So James says... Temptation does not come from God. You know, testing and trying might come from Him, but temptation doesn't. And then uh, also James points out how we're led astray by our own lust. But no, I wouldn't say God never tempts us to sin. No. Because based on James 1. I don't know if that answered your question, what you were getting at. Yeah, I wasn't saying God tempts us to sin. I was just saying okay. I'm sinful enough that, you know, I would assume that most of my sinning comes from me rather than from the devil. 
Well, that too. Because the devil's... <laughs> yeah, the because we in, have a fallen nature. The devil's in one place. Right. And I guess, I guess there's, you know, he has demonic lesions or whatever as well on, on sure. his side, but he's really only in one place. And sure. I guess lim- really limited, or in some ways limited. But it's us too, the world, the flesh, that's what you're talking about, and the devil. Right. So temptation can come from any of the above. You know, the world, the flesh, and the devil comprise a pretty effective committee. <laughs> Never heard it put that way, but you're right. <laughs> okay. Let's remember these that we put on the board tonight. And we go to the Lord in prayer. And Charlie, would you begin our prayer time? And then uh, if you feel led to pray out loud for one of these needs or any other need, uh, you do so and I'll close us in prayer. Father, uh, just thank you for this lesson tonight. As time goes on, uh, we can see more and more of your activity. And it is a blessing to know that you are still ruler of the whole world. That you still have control of all things. And help us to rely on you. Spend more time in your word. Learning more of your grace. Of your majesty of your power, of your mercy and love. That all we see that is going on today is that we know from your word that payday is coming. And the whole world will exalt your name. Father, thank you that I know you that when that day comes, and the trumpets blow that will be the day Father every knee is going to bow and it's going to realize that all the things that we've done here on earth everything that we've done that has been against your word Father there will be judgment. But thank you, Father God, that those that know you at your name, we will bow willingly and we will just praise you for who you are. But in the meantime, Father, help us as the psalmist says, be still and know that you are God. And he says one day, you will be exalted. Father, all these things we see are signs that your coming is near. And I pray that we as believers will search our hearts and our souls and that we will make sure that we know that we know 
that we belong to you. Father, as we continue tonight, I'd like to lift up those on our prayer list. Think about Susan Ressler. Uh, Father, be with her and help her at this time. She's had so much problems with pneumonia with her lungs. Uh, we pray a special blessing on her and Al. We pray especially, Father, that you might touch her lungs and clear them up. That she might be restored to good health. Father, we think of all the others on the list that are facing recoveries from surgery. Those that are uh, especially Helen Andrews. As she holds on to life, that you would be with her and give her the grace that she needs to get through each day. And just give her comfort as she is at home. Father, I just pray that you be with all of them. Uh, Brenda Dooley, as she recovers from her hip surgery, that uh, she has been having a lot of pain. We pray, Father, that you might lift that pain and allow the physical therapist to come in and help her to regain strength, that she might be uh, up and out again. And Lord, we just thank you the rest of them on that list. You know each need. You know each hurt. And that you can fulfill each need. And you can comfort each hurt. <clears throat> Father, as I pray now, go with us as we go out this week. As the message was tonight, that we are entering a battleground. And that we should go out each day prepared to be warriors for Jesus Christ. And I just thank you in your most precious name. Amen. some of your folks are going through really tremendous struggles even this evening and they are in need of your comfort <clears throat> when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth he said that you do give your people your comfort so that they in turn can give comfort to others that are also in need of that same comfort. And so, Lord, we pray that as you answer prayer for all these folks that are on the board, and as you do bring comfort and solace to them, then, Lord, that Rather than that being a pool, it would be a rushing, uh, mighty river. But the same comfort that you comfort them, that they will be able to comfort others. <clears throat> Lord, deliver each and 
each of us from the subtle temptation of wanting to keep the comfort you give to ourself and not pass it on. And Lord, we, we pray for each of these folks on this board that the eternal God would be their refuge and that they would feel your loving arms upholding and uplifting them and that they would be keenly aware that it is indeed a supernatural work of the living God that's touched their life. And they want to share that so that you would be glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Father God, we want to say a prayer again for our services this coming Sunday as we gather back to your sanctuary. We ask God that you would awaken your people early on Sunday that they might be in the spirit of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would remove the spirit of fear that people might have because of the COVID virus and all of that, God. We're your people. We know that you protect us. We know, Lord, that you're in charge of all things, and we pray especially Sunday as we gather back in the sanctuary that you would indeed protect your people, help us to open our hearts and to just worship you, God, and just to thank you. Thank you, thank you for all your goodness and your mercy toward us. In Jesus' name. Father, we can take great comfort in knowing that <clears throat> Satan could only do with Job what you allowed him to do. Satan could only do with Simon Peter what you allowed. He asked permission, was granted permission to sift Simon as wheat. He could only do what God allowed. Lord, we don't understand always your purposes in all things. But you're sovereign God. You're the all-wise God. And all-powerful and knowing and present with us. And we can stand on that promise that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Lord, help us to be strong in your grace as we battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. And we know in the world there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
Satan tries to utilize all these things. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to follow you. You're not only the shepherd, you're the good shepherd. You know your sheep. Your sheep know you. Jesus said nothing can snatch them out of your hand. So we take great comfort in that. That you've not left us alone in this world. We thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ. And that ultimately the battle is won. I think of that day as Ephesians 2 says, we'll be seated in the heavenly places. And Paul records it as though it's as good as already done. Seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And these battles will be over. But Lord, until then, help us to be very cognizant of lapses in our lives, uh, compromises, neglect of our relationship with you, neglect of knowing your word. Lord, help us to do what you tell us to do, obviously, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. Because, Lord, we can't do it in the flesh. Thank you that you do have your hands on us. We pray for your watch care, your protection over your people. And God, I pray that you would give us open doors, set an open door before us to share the gospel with the world. Lord, help us to be firm in our faith. Lord, I pray that we would understand that our walk with you is a daily walk. We're to follow Christ. It's not something that we just look back on that happened to us, our conversion 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. A mentality saved and satisfied. But may we draw near to you daily and submit ourselves to you. God, we pray as a church that your hand would be on us and your watch care over us. We are nothing without Christ and can do nothing apart from Him. So work your work in and through us. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.